It's it's sis 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 no, it wasn't Psycho. Citizen Kane! It was Citizen Kane! It was Citizen Kane! It was Citizen Kane! <laughs> Welcome to 30 Years Later. I am your host, or co-host, Ricky Camilleri, with my co-host, or the co-host, Chris Chafin. Hello, Chris. It's the co-host. Thank you very much, yeah. The co-host, the sidekick, Chris Chafin. No, I know that uh, I'm not as comfortable with, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're doing a, a bit of a special episode today, not something that we've done yet. We haven't really veered too far off the track when it comes to this idea but um uh evan davis our friend evan davis and uh first time second comer on the pod um pitched this to us and we really liked it and um what it is is that um citizen kane was re-released in theaters um on uh may 1st and um given all of the news around mank uh evan pitched that we uh that we cover citizen kane he is a he's an orson wells and citizen kane citizen kane scholar is that appropriate to say evan? Uh, uh amateur scholar now at one time i was a little bit more formal but uh i'll take it why not so we're going to talk all about why it was re-released what that release did to film preservation we're going to talk about the movie as well and uh what was so important about it at the time obviously we're going to state our own opinions because opinions are like assholes and we are assholes and beautiful we yeah. not sexy <laughs> But I had another idea as well that I wanted to throw into the mix here because uh, we are veering off the track as to movies that are being released. And there were movies that were released the last week of April uh, that were not, none of which we're going to be talking about. So I just want to say briefly what they were. And if anybody has an opinion about them. In 1991, you mean? In 1991, like this? Yes, in 1991, in the last week of April in 1991. Wasn't there a Bill Duke movie that came out? There is a Bill Duke movie that I love that came out May 3rd, and that's A Rage in Harlem Yeah, uh, with Forrest Whitaker and Gregory Hines and Robin Givens and Danny Glover. What a cast. Um, it's, the, it's the Bill Duke pre-Deep Cover, which ended up getting, um, uh, you know, Deep Cover's getting the Criterion treatment in July. Yeah. Um, but uh, Rage in Harlem's great. That comes out on May 3rd. For that date, we're actually talking about One Good Cop with uh, junk filter pods jesse hawkins I, I love that's an, we talked about vhs box covers the last time i was here that is a that is a classic vhs box with cover. michael keaton because there's three there's one good cop pacific heights and um, yes and a third keaton one that i would always mix up because they basically look the same and not multiplicity not multiplicity no <laughs> um but the anyway. movies that came out april 26th we have a kiss before dying uh, directed by James Dearden, starring Matt Dillon and Sean Young and Max von Sydow and Diane Ladd and um, Jimmy Russo, one of my favorites. Uh, I haven't seen this movie. It looks 
like a pretty cool early nineties thriller. Uh, someone involved with fatal attraction, uh, had something to do. I think James Dearden maybe was, um, the writer of fatal attraction. Um, Oscar directed by John Landis and starring Sylvester Stallone and Marissa Tomei, a sort of notorious, um, failure, but a dog, dog, but not a box office failure was number one at the box office for two weeks, Mm. including the week that it was released. But that doesn't say much because the week before out for justice was number one. Spartacus was also restored and re-released this week as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and a movie called, uh, toy soldiers, which I haven't seen since I was young, but it is not the one. It is not small soldiers. It is toy soldiers, and yeah. it's it's also not directed- masterminds, which has almost exactly the same plot. That's the movie where Patrick Stewart is the bad guy. In this, uh, Sean Astin and Will Wheaton are students at like a boys' reformatory, and um, Cold War style, I believe the Russians or some form of terrorist. It's 1991 at this time, so maybe they've moved on to Arabs at this point in Hollywood. (laughs) It's quite possible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Back back in this time, it was really big. It was big to have, like, rogue generals that were terrorists, you know? Oh, that's that's true. Who were, like... uh, Die Hard 2. That's the plot of Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2, right. Who were, like, left over from, like, the the sort of um, dark wars in Latin America, right? Right, right. Or, like, Um, post-Soviet ones or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Toy Soldiers is a movie that I, part of me wants to catch back up with because I liked it a lot when I was a kid, but I also know for a fact it's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the thing that we have to say at the top is that Ricky especially was feeling very like emotionally beaten down by the like last three movies that we did. And he has been what were dying they? What, to watch wait. a good movie. Dying to watch a good movie. Yeah. What were they? Drop Dead Fred, Out for Justice, and The Marrying Man, right? Yes. Yeah. They completely broke your sake. spirit. I completely broke your spirit. Yeah, I don't know if anybody could hear me in Drop Dead Fred, but I was I was barely listening to myself or you during Drop Dead. <laughs> I was just a wall of noise in my head. But because of um, those movies that were uh, released, which all sounded kind of terrible to me, with the exception of A Kiss Before Dying, that does sound like something I would potentially watch, something similar to Malice or Basic Instinct, but you know, nothing is going to be as good as Basic Instinct. Uh, in that genre, uh, we decided, based off Evan's pitch, to do um, a classic, the the classic, uh, Citizen Kane. Evan, you know you you did your dissertation on 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 Wells, right? Well, so I I left my I have a master's degree in film studies from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, I actually left the program before I began the PhD side of it. So. Okay. My my plan was to write my doctoral dissertation on another phase of Wells's career, focusing on a lot of the unfinished films that he had made in the 1950s and 60s, um, which there are a couple of archives all over the world that has all of this material stored. And I've seen a lot of it, and it's pretty incredible. So I think there would have been a really interesting um, uh, bit of discovery there to write about because a lot of ink has been spilled on Kane, but Kane was my entry point uh, in my own life to get to Orson Welles. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I knew Orson Welles as the guy at the end of the Muppet movie um, who gives them the the rich and famous contract, the standard rich and famous contract. He was 
very in pop culture at the time, right? Like well, Animaniacs, for example, was always making jokes right. about That's Orson right. Welles. Well, and also, I mean, Pinky and the Brain, Brain in that cartoon sure, is based on Orson Welles. And of course, Welles also is a character in The Critic, the show The Critic, because Maurice LaMarche, who did the voice of the brain, et cetera. So yes, he was this figure and he had been able to kind of create that because when he came back to the United States in the 60s, he, in order to make money to fund his own projects, he appeared on the Dean Martin show and he did the talk show rounds, Dick Cavett and did magic and took a lot of really bad roles, was the pitch man for a lot of commercials. I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen the very famous uh, Paul Masson wine commercials and the outtakes where he's drunk and he kind of makes a fool of himself. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. The first time I ever heard of Citizen Kane was when the American Film Institute published, just published the list of their 100 greatest movies ever made. I vividly remember, I was 11 years old, and I remember um, that list being published in an issue of TV Guide. And I saw what is one of the more famous images of Citizen Kane, where he's... Uh, giving a campaign speech and he's kind of like reaching off to the side and you see a photo of him behind him. A couple of years later, I think I was maybe 13 or 14, and my dad, who's the guy who kind of got me into classical movies, he showed me Marx Brothers movies and um, Frank Capra movies and Casablanca when I was a kid. Uh, I asked him, and I was like, so what do you think of Citizen Kane? Is it good? And he's like, oh, it's great. It's terrific. You know, they say it's the greatest movie ever made. And this is going to be a recurring theme in this conversation, that label. So I saw it for the first time when I was about 14. And I really liked it because it's a super fun, engaging, entertaining movie. The dialogue moves at a mile a minute. And I was so fascinated by the fact that Wells, it was the first movie, first feature film he'd ever directed. He was starring in it. He produced it. He co-wrote the script. And he was 25 years old when he did all of those things, know, which crazy. is un crazy. unreal. I mean, and particularly at that time, it was pretty unreal. And for it to especially be so high profile, it was pretty unreal. And I didn't really know much about the controversy about its making. I got a little bit through osmosis, like that it was this hot potato of a movie when it came out because William Randolph Hearst who's this very famous media magnate of the time, wanted to get it banned because there was this belief that the main character, Charles Foster Kane, was based on Hearst, and the movie is not a very flattering portrait of its main character. Um, but I just thought it was this cool movie. I watched it a couple of times, gave it back to my dad, and really didn't think about it again. And then a couple of years later, so I'm 16 now, and um, I had the tape again. I don't remember why. I think it had something else, because my dad was a big, like, because we didn't grow up with a lot of money. So we didn't go to the movie theater a lot and we didn't buy VHSs at all. And so what would happen is my dad would rent a VHS and then he would take a blank VHS cassette, pop it in the camcorder, connect it to the VCR oh and then God. record it and then do that thing where like you record it at ultra long speed. You remember this was being sold to us with blank VHSs where like if you set a different speed and then you could get six hours on one tape rather than two three hours. Movies. Oh you get exactly. three movies. Exactly. The quality is so low. First, right? exactly yeah. first ultra ultra speed or whatever it was called VHS that I had of taped movies was uh, Terminator 2, 
Child's Play 2 yep. and Freddy's Dead. There you Freddy's go. Dead, which is going to be a 30 years later movie in a few in a, in a oh, few months. Me. But those were the first three movies that I owned. That's a lineup right yeah. there. I don't I've had three or four of these moments in my life where like I watched the movie and at the end of it I knew that my life wasn't going to be the same. Like it was, I had that profound an experience watching this thing, and I I didn't sleep that night. I was just looping the movie over and over and over in my head, and the next morning I was like, all right, because at that point I wanted to be a musician. That was the plan, and then the next morning I was like, all right, whatever that movie is connected to, I don't know if I thought it in these words, but this was the emotion. Like whatever that movie is a part of, I need to be a part of it. And I went hard. I was watching at the time AMC was like TCM. So I was just watching everything on AMC and TCM that I could. I was reading everything that I could about Orson Welles and about the movie and about other classic Hollywood movies. I discovered the Criterion Collection during that year. Um, I was a junior in high school and lived in a town with a little liberal arts college in it, Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. And that spring semester, they were offering an intro to film class. And I petitioned my guidance counselor to let me take it for extra credit. And so after school, I would get out of school early, I think two days a week, and I would go to the college. And I was this little 16-year-old pipsqueak sitting in the back of this auditorium with like 25 college students. And I spent the next decade basically kind of laying the groundwork to have that life. And it ultimately ended up not working out because I realized I hated teaching, which grad school finally taught me. (laughs) Um, But up until then, like I worked as a film critic in New York. I worked for film comment magazine and I worked uh, uh, in art house movie theaters in New York city. And I took all the film history and film theory classes that I could when I was an undergraduate and I watched everything. And it just, it all started with citizen Kane. And so my, reflex is to say that it's my favorite movie of all time it feels stupid to say that because there are lots of movies that mean a lot to me that do different things for me and also the greatest of all time label is such a burden that the movie carries on on i feel bad even when i tell people i'm watching it like someone's like what are you what are you doing tonight and i'm like oh i'm watching citizen kane and i can hear them go like okay yeah right right like this pretentious yeah and you kind of want to be like no, it's fine. It's like, I mean, great. what's the problem with watching what's something that's considered the greatest movie right, of all time? Right. Two, it's also just a fun movie. Right. Like, it, it's it's not a big deal that I'm watching Citizen it. Kane. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, one of the reasons that I said yes to the pitch was so I could watch, have a reason it's to crazy. watch Citizen Kane again. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun I'm, movie to watch. Yeah. I mean, I went through this thing, like, last two years ago, I guess. I was reading War and Peace, and I just hated, like... Anytime somebody would ask me what I'm reading, they're like, I was like, oh, oh, I don't it's really such want to a talk good about book. it. You know, I don't it's really want to talk about book. it. And they're like, come on, what are you reading? I'm like, I'm reading War and Peace. And they're like, oh, it's, it's a good a, book. It's a good like, book. I think about it all the time. It's really, like, really good. If, and it's entertaining. It's like a war story with a big romance in it. And, well, that's you know. it. Like, if you don't want to read the philosophical treatises at the end of the book, you can just treat it as this romantic melodrama against the backdrop of a war. That's a super fun, easily accessible thing to do with something it is like great that. though because it's like a, he's like a, a melodramatic scene is happening and then it, you know he'll just be like and this reminds me of a point about leadership and then he just I know, says like i, I kind of love about like i kind of love that i love those little polemical asides i do he too has, i love it you know? i love it um but you're right yeah his it, column is it tucked inside his book you know right yeah so i mean it, it, it 
to say it's my favorite movie of all time. I, I mean, I guess that it is, but I, it's an incredibly personal movie to me. And it's a weird thing to say just because of its reputation. But like my life wouldn't be what it is if I didn't watch that thing at that exact point in my life. It really did change my life. And this is what birthed your sort of semi-obsession with, with Wells in the movie. Oh, absolutely. And, and the more I read about him and the more I found out about him, the more intrigued I was about all the other movies that he made and all the other work that he was involved in. And when I became a film scholar, you know, it was, it, it's just endless. I mean, I, I talked to um, Herman Mankiewicz, one of Herman Mankiewicz's biographers. Um, and Herman Mankiewicz, of course, is the other guy who co-wrote the screenplay with, with Wells. And she said... Is that Mank? Uh, no, the book... Is, is that Mank? <laughs> I've heard about Mank. Is this, he's this cool guy, right? Is, this, is that right? Mank! Is this Mank? Um, funny, funny digression. Uh, uh, more people in his heyday called him Manky than Mank. And for a movie to have been called that and have that be uh, running <laughs> through the dialogue Maybe. would have been horrifying. But um, but she said her name is Sydney Stern and her book is called The Brothers Mankiewicz and it's a great book. Um, but she, I was talking to her on the phone and she said, you know, when I was writing the Citizen Kane section, it was hard not to just want to write a book about Wells because he's just so fascinating. And she even said, like, I look on my library shelf, I got exponentially more books about Wells than I do about Mankiewicz. You know, he's just this, he's this bottomless pit of a man for so many reasons for good. I mean, he's the, bad. he's kind of the OG like pop culture rock on rock on tour. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. He's like the sort embodiment of, like, public... of a special kind of like, you know, artist energy, you know, like, he just wants to make the best art he possibly can make, and he's fighting the system all the time. Yeah, I and mean, he's like prototypically that person. He's um, he's but he's also a swindler and an addict right. and like yeah, a, right. a like a, a a total wild card who never um, self sabotaging. Like, you know, well, like, I'm yeah, gonna, I couldn't suffer fools and uh, I'll, uh, the self sabotaging reputation is. It comes from somewhere real, but it is, I think, uh, egregiously overblown, particularly when you compare him to his peers, by which I mean, um, so for the listeners who may not be aware, like Orson Welles, born in 1915 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, his father became very wealthy because he invented um, a part that was necessary for electric headlights in automobiles. And so he became very wealthy from that. But his father was also an alcoholic and an inveterate gambler and was always running into trouble. And his money was always running into trouble. And um, Wells spent most of his childhood in Chicago. Um, his mother was a pianist who kind of fostered his love of art. She died when he was nine. His father died of cirrhosis when Wells was 15. Um, Wells moved to this um, very progressive kind of hippy dippy boys school for high school called the Woodstock School for Boys, where he came under the tutelage of the headmaster, a guy named Roger Hill, and who really fostered his love of theater and love of storytelling. And that's kind of where his own career with acting and directing began. Um, when he's 16, he drops out of school and moves to Ireland and becomes an itinerant artist. He goes around with a little cart. Um, basically, he's, he's a street painter. He like goes from town to town, like painting vistas, and tries to sell his his 
his wares. Um, and then he makes his way to Dublin and there's this new theater that's just been formed in Dublin called the Gate Theater. And it's run by this gay couple named Hilton Edwards and Michael McLeamore. And Wells decided like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to pretend like I am this big, important Broadway actor. He's 16, has never done really anything. He's never done anything professional on the stage. And he goes up and he auditions for them. And Michael McLeamore writes in his memoirs, like, here's this kid who is just blustering all over the stage. It's so obvious he's not who he says he is. It's so obvious that he's got absolutely no acting technique. But he's mesmerizing. I couldn't take my eyes off of this kid. Like he is with a little. Training. I mean, he was a beauty. Well, not just not just that, but like he is he is a. F- and if there's one thing Ricky appreciates, it's a good-looking sixteen-year-old boy. <laughs> oh, let's save. Let's save. Loves it. Let's Loves save that it. until I uh, uh, get my police wire strapped to my chest. But um, <laughs> it's not just that he was a good-looking guy. Like they, he just he's so magnetic as an actor. Like you just can't remove your eyes from everything that he's doing, particularly in those days when he was young and he was hungry. And so he ended up working, he, they hired him and he worked in this theater and their repertory company for three years. And then, and then when he's 19 in 1934, he goes back to the States and he moves to New York and he immediately gets cast as, um, I believe it's Mercutio or Tybalt, one of the two in uh, a Broadway production of Romeo and Juliet when he's 19 years old. Um, and 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 he, it's it sets him on his way. A year and a half later, when he's twenty, he's directing the all black cast of Macbeth. Uh, that was um, that really made him famous because at that point he was just a working actor. But when he did that, that got all of this attention, and he was able to parlay that into creating his own theater company. When he did the very famous Julius Caesar well, production that was set in fascist Europe and. He did all of this other theater work, and that uh, eventually led to him doing the War of the Worlds broadcast on radio. He was, to, to, to your earlier point, what all of this is setting up is that he wasn't just a film director. He really was an artistic man of letters. He was a renaissance man. He did basically everything, and everything he did that came from his own creative impulse, he basically did really well. You know, he was constantly innovating. He was constantly reinventing forms. You know, that production of Macbeth more or less invented conceptual theater. You know, the world... That's what I was going to say. He's one of the things that I I was struck by with Kane in this last rewatch. Yeah. And just thinking about Wells is his ability to look at whatever medium he's about to dive into yep. and say to himself, well, what hasn't... what." what can you what can you do and explore within this medium Absolutely. that hasn't necessarily been done yet yeah. and he does that with he 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 starts with theater and he does it with theater and he finds angles to sell the plays in, in an even greater way and i'm sure those angles also carry depth but then with radio he's like okay well with radio these are news broadcasts people will think they're real let's present the story that's going to make people think it's real and he does it very well and then with movies it feels like okay the majority of movies, if, especially if you're watching a lot of John Ford, are a series of scenes. You know, there's beautiful imagery in between, maybe, maybe the incredibly well photographed scenes, but it is still a theatrical art form in a way. And he yeah. sort of jumps into, he jumps into Kane, to me, feels like one of the first times that you see a filmmaker realizing that how short scenes can be and how tangential you can go 
in the narrative of of of, of cinematic storytelling, yeah. right? Like Scorsese is one of the few people who kind of still sticks to that and does that in every movie where, you know, he specifically sort of pioneered the modern version of that. But Citizen Kane to me feels like, I know it's always talked about in terms of a broken up narrative because it's not necessarily non-linear, but what it also is, is in not being linear, it sets up the ability for the artist to find these tangentials and going as far along them as you can and then rearing back to what the main purpose of the story is, right? It's an interesting point. And I think um, what you're also getting at is, is... Cain has a reputation um, that Wells himself helped foster that it did a bunch of things technically that had never been done before in movies, whether it's uh, deep focus cinematography or, you know, making sure that like the ceiling of a set could be seen in the shot because before the microphones would be up there. So nobody ever wanted to shoot a ceiling or um, montages or this very complicated flashback structure, all these things. None of that is exactly true in the sense that Wells invented those techniques. All those techniques had been available to directors before him. What he did was to bring all of them together and synthesize them into one package and um, then push each of those techniques to their logical extremes. So like deep focus cinematography goes back to the silent era, to early silent cinema. But Wells made it you know, all of a sudden he's shooting with a 12 millimeter uh, fast coated lens and making sure that something is in the immediate foreground while also sensing something in the extreme background and making all of these really extended and strange uh, imagery. You know, uh, Andre Bazin, the great French critic, described Citizen Kane as a movie whose images are like an elastic band stretched almost to the point where they're going to snap apart, but they never do. You know, like it, the movie is kind of this brilliant culmination and synthesis of all of these techniques that had been showing up in American movies up to now, but had never been done so intensely, so extremely, and so um, completely all in one two hour uh, package. Well, you think about even by the time it gets to the sort of anchor of the movie, which is. Um, we have to find out what Rosebud is, right? Yeah, a, a group right. of a group of reporters or whoever they were. I don't remember like being like we have to find out who Rosebud is. That's like ten or fifteen minutes or so into the movie. You've at that point had an opening scene. You've had the opening death scene. Yeah. You've had you've had a new you've had newsreel footage, and then within that newsreel footage alone, it drops into the movie. Right. And oh, starts telling this. little mini stories within that. And then it pulls back into the news footage. There's something so brazen and confident about the way he is dealing with narrative. And it's not, and it's not just being like, Oh, he's dead at the beginning. And then we get to how he died. It's actually like within the span of 10 minutes at times, you are in multiple time periods, multiple mediums, multiple, like multiple character narrations. It's in like, it's a huge rarity for something like that. I think in what, 1944? 1941. Right? For, 41. 1941. Yeah. I mean, Completely. His Girl Friday is 1940. And I love His Girl Friday, but His Girl Friday is a play. It's yeah, a, it it's a, it's, you know, it's a, 
It's not doing anything and like, like this. this is and his I don't think John movie. Ford was either. Yeah. I mean, and this is Wells' first movie after making his name in theater and in radio, right? So, like, right. there's no reason this shouldn't. And he's using all of the actors from that he used on, in theater. For many of them, this is their first movie, right? Yeah. So, like, all of them actually. It should feel like a play. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it doesn't. If anybody has an excuse to make a movie that feels like a play, it's Orson Welles with his first movie. Right. But it, it doesn't at all. It's so cinematic it's, from the jump. It's, it truly feels to me that he was able to sort of. St- look at whatever medium he was about to dive into and be like, what does this medium do best? And how can we do that? You nailed it. You know, like, like in most, most filmmakers don't like really don't know how to do that. Even, even to this day. Well, you mentioned Ricky, there's like, 10 solid minutes of newsreel footage, like right at the start of the movie, there's the opening death scene. It's maybe like two or three minutes, something like that. And then it's like, News on the March, here's the life of of Charles Foster Kane. And it goes on for a long time. And somehow in all the other times I've watched this movie, it never really felt like this huge exposition dump at the beginning, which is, of course, exactly what it is. But it's, and it should it's feel, the whole movie. Yeah. But it's so great. It's, right. it's so it's well wonderful, done. But it's it, so it kinetic, is... you know, and like... News on the March! Xanadu's landlord was laid to rest, a potent figure of our century, America's Kubla Khan, Charles Foster Kane. It is the whole movie, yeah. right? right? It's like yeah. it, it's like he dies, and then we have this ten-minute news, like news on the march thing that is going to be is going to be every story that is told for the rest of the movie, right? Like, like a man of principles who later had some bad ideas and he's very rich, yeah. but did it really yeah. matter that yeah. he was rich? He's a communist. He's a fascist. I'm an American. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, is exactly. like, I mean, that yeah. is one thing that the movie does that Mank tried, I think kind of not, I'm, I'm not trying to jump into the Mank stuff right now. So quickly, Mank was very scared to, to be, to be as cynical as I think Kane is, which is yeah. surprising because David Fincher is a, is a notoriously cynical, you know, storyteller. And the thing with Kane that is so resonant right now is the way that the words communist and fascist are thrown around mm-hmm. by anybody of any particular of any political party right. if they want to win. Yeah. They just code and 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 qualify someone as those things. Yeah. Which feels very uh, reminiscent when I watch like a Marjorie Taylor Green video and she <laughs> says like, you know, they're, they're communists or they're fascists or whatever. Right. And it's like, uh, right. <laughs> can't really be both. But okay, sure. Yeah. Complete. You know, bad stuff. I you think, know, bad stuff. You know, the um, Wells, when Wells and Mankiewicz were writing the script, um, they spent, I think, about two months together basically in like a, what we would now call a writer's room where they were breaking story, just the two of them. Um, and there are these great stories about how like, because at the time, as is depicted in the movie Mank, um, Mankiewicz was laid up after having a really bad car wreck. And so he was just home. And he and Wells had met each other, I think a year or two before in New York, just in passing. And they had gotten along. And then when Mankiewicz had his accident, he needed money. And wells basically threw him a bone by uh offering him uh to write radio scripts for him and mankiewicz was happy to do that and they would just be hanging out all the time and like wells would be in mankiewicz's home really late at night they'd be drinking um like uh, mankiewicz's wife sarah like he she and wells would just like be hanging out in bed like next to 
Mankiewicz was in like this huge traction thing. They were just all buddies. It was like a Jules and Jim kind of thing. And um, eventually they kind of just started talking about this idea about, because both of them had kind of had similar ideas about telling a story of a man's life from multiple points of view, uh, telling a story about a powerful man laid low who lost his idealism and became a tyrant. Um, there was this movie in 1933 called The Power and the Glory starring Spencer Tracy that was actually written by Preston Sturges um, that has a very cane-like structure. It's about a tycoon and it's told from all these points of view. And so there are all of these elements that all kind of started to coalesce and they um, hashed out all of this material and eventually they realized that they were just fighting too much. And so Wells was like, you just need to go write the draft. I'm working on a couple other projects. Go out to this desert ranch in California. You won't drink. I'll send my partner, John Houseman there with you and just hammer it out. And then I'll jump in when you've got something for me to jump in on. Wells always said that he was writing a draft alongside uh, Mankiewicz separately. There's no documentation that proves it. Wells's working methods would suggest that he would be doing that. We just don't know. Um, but one of the th early things that they talked about was this newsreel and how they thought, how do we kind of like set, lay the groundwork for and all of these ideas that we want to do? Like we need to give the audience some kind of a foothold to make them understand that we're going to be jumping around in time. We're going to be telling we're going to have multiple uh, perspectives and viewpoints uh, with across multiple characters. How do we do that and set that up in a way that it won't be boring for the audience or pedantic for the audience? And so they came up with this idea of turning that into a newsreel. And like Ricky said, everything in the movie is there. The contrasting viewpoints, his entire life story, um, the way that uh, certain characters disagree, the mystery, the unanswered questions, it's all in it. And what's so brilliant about it is that it is a to a letter, a parody of a newsreel that you would have seen in 1941. Same how like the opening of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast sounds exactly like a radio broadcast. Wells was fascinated with truth and the way that truth is represented in media. Um, you know, his greatest statement on this is a movie that he made in the 70s called F for Fake, which is one of the greatest documentaries mm -hmm. ever made, um, which is about art forgery. Um, but he uses nonfiction and plays with nonfiction and basically all of the work that he makes. And the newsreel section of Citizen Kane is such a perfect distillation of that. They tell these stories about how, like, after they shot it, when they were starting to edit it together, he took the the strips of negative film and threw them on the ground and stomped on them because he wanted to add more dirt and scratches to a newsreel that would have had a lot of dirt and scratches because it was being played so much in in a theater you know he wanted that level of detail and then also like the silent film quote unquote silent film footage that's in the newsreel he deliberately shot that at a lower frame rate so then it was played back at 24 frames per second it would look super fast the way that a silent film would be seen if an audience was seeing it, all of these little and the guy who um, the guy who does the uh, uh, narration, I mean, that's a newsreel. That's a newsreel voice. I mean, you might not have seen a lot of newsreels, but you know that voice. That's how yeah, I mean, a really I... ostentatious newsman sounds. It's incredible. I guess they wanted the guy who did the actual news on the march, uh, the march of time. Yes, and they couldn't get him. 
March of Time, right? They couldn't. He wanted too much money, so yeah. they just literally had someone do an impression. That's of ex- that's like, exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it's. So it. I think we, I think we kind of covered this at the top a little bit when we were talking about AFI. But how did Citizen Kane become the greatest film of all time? So it's this interesting thing where um, the movie, obviously, when it was released, had all of these problems because. It's based on William Randolph Hearst, who was this incredibly powerful media magnate at the time. Um, he um, tried to buy the negative uh, so he could destroy it before it was ever released and um, tried to bully all the other um, studio heads to like convince RKO, who made Citizen Kane, to sell the negative and get rid of it before anyone could ever see it. And there was this very effective um, press campaign against that because Wells did a press screening um, about three months before it came out. And every person, like Time Magazine, a bunch of magazines saw that and immediately wrote it about it. Like William Randolph Hearst doesn't want you to see this film. So there was this huge standoff and it was supposed to come out like two months earlier than it was, than it did. Um, and the way that Hollywood was structured back then was that there were eight major film studios, or five major film studios and three minor ones. And the five major ones, not only did they own um, uh, production facilities and um, distribution networks, they also owned all the movie theaters in America, which is why there was antitrust legislation brought up against them, because uh, theater owners didn't have a say in what they could show. And independent theater producers couldn't get their stuff shown at all. Um, So it was this massive oligopoly that controlled the content uh, of movie theaters across the country. So when Hearst wasn't able to buy the negative back, what he did instead was, because he owned half the newspapers in America too, he basically told all of his columnists, uh, shit on this movie nonstop. And also, we are not going to advertise uh, the movie in any of our papers, and we are going to bully and threaten all the theater chains into not showing it. Because that was the thing, like, like 20th Century Fox like owned all the theaters in the South, Warner Brothers owned all the theaters in the West, that kind of thing. I don't remember if I have the geography exactly right, but that was kind of how it worked. So all these studios kind of had to work together to make sure that their movies got shown in all these different parts of the country. And so he just, Hearst just told Fox and Warner Brothers and MGM, like, you're not showing this movie in your theater chains. Not going to happen. And so the movie kind of bombed. It didn't, like, bomb as seriously as its reputation, but it didn't do very well. And then a couple, and but critics still put it on their top 10 lists, and it was still pretty pretty critically well-respected. But then it just disappeared. It didn't get re-released. Like, a big hit movie would play for a year, year and a half in theaters back in those days. So it just disappeared from American screens. No one ever revived it. And then in 1946, um, after World War II, all of these American movies that were being held back from the European market started flooding the European market. And so, oh, wait, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards. It was. It was nominated. It was nominated oh, for a bunch of them because. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, critics, critics, and members. Didn't it win like best screenplay? It, Is that it, Mankiewicz and Wells won best screenplay, um, yeah. but they lost. Right. They lost all the others. And there's a very famous story because by that point, Mankiewicz had also kind of like kicked the hornet's nest about him deserving sole credit, and so um, every time Wells's name was announced as a nominee that night, he got loud boos. And then when Mankiewicz's wow. name was announced as the winner 
the whole place went crazy, which is kind of funny. So, um, yeah, I mean, after 1941, it just disappeared. And then in 46, it starts showing in Paris. And all of the critics who would become filmmakers later on, you know, Eric Romare, Francois Truffaut, um, and of course, Andre Bazin, who was not a filmmaker, but a critic, they all saw it and thought, this is a masterpiece. This movie is incredible. And they started writing about it and they started developing their own kind of critical philosophies built around Citizen Kane. And so it became really huge in France, but it still wasn't gaining a foothold in America. Americans, most Americans saw Citizen Kane when it debuted on television in 1956, which is this really interesting kind of like twist in its legacy. Um, and it was, it was a part of it. In 1955-56, all the studios started selling their libraries to television stations. And that's when you got like, you know, the late night triple feature, the Saturday movie of the week, all the movie brats like Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese. Whenever they talk about seeing classic Hollywood movies, it's usually because they were seeing them on TV. And that's how they all saw Citizen Kane for the first time, which was in 15 years after it came out. And that's when its reputation really started to take off. And then a bunch of critics in 1962 in England, writing for this very glossy magazine in England called Sight and Sound, once a decade, they still do this, once a decade, they vote on what the top 10 movies of all time are. Uh, the first poll was in 52. I believe that it was Bicycle Thieves, Desika's Bicycle Thieves, which was number one that year. But by 62, enough people had started to see Citizen Kane in European movie theaters or on television in the States to decide this is now the greatest movie we've ever seen. Because Wells was also just, he was still appearing in movies. He was still trying to get movies made. He was still this big personality. And um, in 62, they voted it the best movie of all time. And so that's when its reputation really started to become cemented um, as, this, as this major, major piece of, of, of the studio pie. What was the response um, like from other filmmakers uh, in, uh, around that time when it started being cast as the greatest movie of all time? I'm sure Bogdanovich was on board. Yeah. But yes, he was. Were there were there were there other filmmakers, maybe contemporaries or peers of Wells from that time who 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 disagreed or, or came um, out and said that they weren't a fan of the movie or anything? Uh, you know, he had a lot of friends in Hollywood, as many enemies as he had. He also had a lot of friends. You know, he and John Huston were extremely close, and Huston loved the movie. Um, Oh my God! Can you imagine partying with John Houston and Orson? Oh God, they Orson they did a lot of it, you know. I'm crazy. sure they did. I would have I to. I would have to awesome. go to bed at a certain point. Like I right. could not handle the fucking two of them. No, completely. I'd rock. I'd ro I would rock oh all God. night with those guys. Yeah, like, like ten bottles of whiskey, and then you're like driving your convertible into a tree. Hey, like, John, let's go for a ride. What are you, a I sissy? Would... You don't want to drive into a tree? What do you? Uh, you want to live forever? You fucking yes. baby. Yes, my kind of men. Those are, that's who I want to hang out with. That's basically what other until when, until like out. until like until women show up and then they start behaving towards women that you would assume oh, that God. they did oh, at their, in God. their in their period of time with the, with their egos. That's a whole other. That's when I like, well, interestingly yeah. enough, Wells again for all of his his ego, he seemed to be a much kinder person to women than most of those kinds of directors were, from what I can understand. Like he had a lot of he also had a, he had a lot of like female friends that he never wanted to fuck which is like very interesting for a guy of that stature and of that time. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, 
you know, Bogart loved Citizen Kane. Like, like, like the artists that he was close with, that he was friends with, really supported it. It was like executives and the um, the columnists who hated him anyway, like Luella Parsons. They're the ones who didn't really like the movie. They wanted to shit on it. And then the movie brats, again, were the ones who just were in a, a, a gape at, at it when it started um, uh, playing later in in, in its hair, you know, uh, William Friedkin still thinks it's the greatest movie he's ever seen. You know, and he was starting out as a as a television director when he saw it. Um, I think Sidney Lumet, I think, has similar feelings. Um, and 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 the the way that we know the impact that Kane had on filmmakers at the time is the way that. Um, uh, so there's this really wonderful book by, um, a guy I studied with in graduate school, a guy named David Bordwell, a very famous film academic. Um, it's called reinventing Hollywood, which is all about, um, storytelling techniques and visual style in the 1940s, specifically in Hollywood in the forties. And what he lays out very convincingly is that again, while all the elements of citizen Kane were would show up in movies in the 1930s and some in the 1920s. Citizen Kane synthesized them and coalesced them in this really nice little package. And after that, all of a sudden, you started to see flashback structures in movies. You started to see movies using deep focus cinematography. Um, you started to see longer takes, like more ostentatious longer takes, more elaborate camera movements, low key, high contrast lighting. You know, there's an argument, you know, film noir comes from a lot of different sources, but you can argue that the way that Citizen Kane used lighting was a very, very direct influence on film noir, which is a genre is invented in 1941. One of whom, one of its inventors being Wells's friend, John Huston. So yeah, I mean, you know, 19, the 1940s is when film noir comes into our lives and those techniques are very heavily drawn from what Kane does. And again, it's not just noir. You also see it in musicals. You see them uh, even in a couple of Westerns, bizarrely, a lot of melodramas, you know, um, those techniques, they have other sources, but Kane is the one because Kane was such a loud statement. Everybody in Hollywood knew about Citizen Kane. They knew what it was when it was being made. They knew Orson Welles' reputation as it was being made. When it was released, everybody in Hollywood saw it. Everybody in Hollywood had an opinion on it. And especially a lot of younger directors who got their start in the 40s, like Vincent Minnelli, Billy Wilder, other directors, uh, John Huston, they wanted to separate themselves from their elders. And so Kane ended up being this source text for them. How do I kind of play off of what Kane's doing in, every, in the stuff that I'm doing over here? Um, so in that sense, Kane, even if it wasn't necessarily broadly known by the public in the 40s, was a hugely influential and important movie to the people who are actually making movies. I mean, this is like a little bit off topic, but you were talking a little bit ago, Evan, about like the way that Wells is fascinated with the way that, you know, the truth is told through the media yeah. and the way that the you know, the media intermediate like intermediates all this stuff. And of course that's like so much of what the movie was about. Yeah, I mean, as somebody absolutely. who like works in media now, it struck me like what a timeless story this is about the way media organizations work. That it's like oh, yeah. basically a movie about a young rich guy who buys a bunch of newspapers, like 
just to feed his own ego and fight his own personal grudges. There's that. And he doesn't really have any idea what he's doing. And when the economy gets kind of fucked up, he just has to sell and or close all of them. And that, I'm like, that is still yeah. happening constantly every single day in America. And, and that philosophy even affects the kind of material that Charles Foster Kane wants to publish in the New York Inquirer. That's that great scene in the flashback to when he buys the paper and he says to the old editor, like, if the headline is big enough, the news is big enough. Which, what, what is clickbait exactly. if not that? I mean, that was one of the quotes I wrote down. That's like a great scene, actually. This scene is so funny because it's yeah. it's so lively, yeah. but it's also got this very funny kind of like theater old movie energy. Yeah. Because oh, yeah, Wells has all these one-liners, and every time he says a droll one-liner, the entire room erupts in laughter, which is like great. Pretty much anything sounds like the funniest thing you've ever heard when that happens. And he's, when he's, got, like, he's just sitting at that table, like shoveling meat onto his plate. And he's like, are you still <laughs> eating? He's like, I'm still hungry. And I mean, to watch, you know, Charles Foster Kane dancing around with chorus girls yeah. and yelling like, we're going to go to war with, are we going to go to war with Spain or aren't we? Yeah. And everyone's laughing and like having a great time. Yeah. You were like, God, this really is the way America works. And it's really awful. Yeah, you know, completely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's the, it's, I think the other thing that prevented Kane from becoming kind of a a codified classic, you know, in the way that like movie companies sell us classic Hollywood as that is it, trying to make us ignore the fact that it's a very political movie. So this, um, this restoration happens and it, it comes out in May of 1991. What was the purpose of this restoration and what kind of impact did it have on on uh, cl classic movies and the viewing of them at this time. Well, it, it comes at kind of this hinge point of reviving and preserving cinema. Um, for the listeners who might not know, um, 35 millimeter celluloid before 1949 was made with, the emulsion was generated with um, silver nitrate. And silver nitrate is notoriously one of the most flammable and unstable yeah, elements right. in the world. Um, it's like crazily explosively flammable, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, a lot of really amazing work on, on the history of movie theaters and exhibition practices in the first couple of decades of cinema's history, basically like 1895 to 1913, was done because a bunch of historians tracked the um, existence of movie theaters through um, their fire code paperwork because a movie projector had to be specially fireproofed in case one of the strips of celluloid caught fire. They didn't want the whole building going up in flames in a matter of seconds. Which was like happened all the time. Happened all the, sure, all the time. And also at the back in those days, um, nowadays a movie uh, projector has like a, a regular like xenon bulb, like a, just a very powerful light bulb. In those days, a movie projector was lit with um, a carbon arc. So basically two pieces of carbon like coming into contact, creating a spark and a bunch of light. So that in itself is also insanely dangerous. So it, what happened was that like a lot of film archives just burned down in fires. You know, like the majority of 20th century Fox movies made before 1935 don't exist anymore because there was a massive archive fire in 1935. And they all just disappeared. And this also happened at Paramount. It happened at MGM. It happened everywhere. I mean, you know, I think 90% of all silent cinema in Japan is gone, just gone. 
and in 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 America, I think only about twenty percent of all silent cinema still exists. Um, it, it, and and for the movies that did survive, the film emulsion was still so unstable that uh, the celluloid would shrink or it would crumble or or it, it would just fall apart to be next to unusable. Um, in 1949, they switched to um, what they called safety film, but safety film in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was made with acetate. And your listeners might be familiar with the phrase vinegar syndrome, when an acetate celluloid decomposes, it creates this chemical reaction that smells like vinegar, and it fades everything on the color spectrum of the celluloid except the color red, which is why, like, if you see, like, an archival celluloid print of a movie made in the 70s that wasn't well cared for, sometimes they look just blood red, and they don't represent the actual colors of the movie. That's from acetate film. So we finally, I think in the 80s, moved to... Um, uh, mylar celluloid, which is very, very strong and very, very stable. And it still needs to be uh, stored properly, but it doesn't require kind of the special conditions of, of, of nitrate or acetate. But all of these movies in the 70s, uh, people were starting to go into archives and realizing it's not just the release prints or the archival prints that are in bad shape. It's the negatives themselves that are in really bad shape. And Martin Scorsese writes this very famous essay in 1980, basically saying, like, we're losing the entire history of color film if we don't act now. We need to transfer all of these negatives to safety film, and we need to start restoring them immediately, or these movies are just going to disappear, and you're never going to see them again, except maybe in, like, a 16-millimeter dupe print that a college film society made from an already, like, banged-up release print. And so... There's this groundswell, um, and MGM puts a lot of money in the set in, into uh, preserving their negatives in the 70s. Um, Scorsese and Coppola get behind it. There's this very famous restoration that Francis Ford Coppola gets involved in of a silent movie from France called Napoleon, which is this very legendary, epic French film that is kind of the first big movie to try and use widescreen processes, which is essentially like lining up three cameras next to each other and shooting them at the same time. He called it polyvision. Um, it's this very big, very complex undertaking. And this historian named Kevin Brownlow like worked a ton to try and get it into a shape that would be watchable. And they had this huge premiere of it in 1981 that became rather famous. And it made studios realize that there was probably a market for not only restoring and preserving these movies, but actually releasing them. You know, Gone with the Wind got re-released every 10 years or something. The Disney animated films got re-released all the time. But studios then thought, well, maybe if there are some of these other movies that are like maybe popular on television, if we took care of those and started putting them into theaters, maybe we could like make a little extra money on the side. And in 1986... Ted Turner, the legendary media mogul and former owner of the Atlanta Braves, he forms Turner Entertainment. Also in, in, inspiration for a great character on The Critic, speaking of, you know. Is that true? Which great character on The Critic I, is he? Duke, I think. I always think oh, the course. guy that is... Of course. I yeah. never knew that. Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah. He bought the MGM, Warner Brothers, and RKO archives. So all the movies they made before 1950, and even some after that, he just bought them all because he wanted to restore them. He had this super station called TBS. He needed content for it. Um, and he also kind of was the most extreme version of 
one side of a philosophical debate in film preservation and restoration. <laughs> you know, yes. and the, and I feel the like I know what you're going to yeah. talk about. There. So, the, yeah. so the dividing line in film restoration and preservation, particularly in the 80s and early 90s, was do you try and make the movie look and sound and feel as it did or was intended to at the time that it was made? Or do you try and update it for a modern sensibility? And this this can range and vary in in in, in extremity. Um, but Ted Turner thought, you know what? Nobody wants to watch a black and white movie. They want to watch a color movie. I'm going to colorize all of these classic Hollywood hits. And he did. He colorized It's a Wonderful Life, which is actually how I saw It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. He colorized, I don't think he ever colorized Casablanca, but there's just a whole slew of movies from that period that he just started slapping color onto and they look awful. They look terrible. They're, 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 they're practically unwatchable and it's all because he believed nobody wanted to see black and white anymore. And there were like congressional hearings about this, like Roger Ebert, <laughs> Roger Ebert was writing like biweekly columns about how this was the second coming of Satan. It was like a, for the person who wanted to pay attention to it, it was a really, really big deal. I mean, I remember this. This was the biggest deal in America in a certain to, way. To you know, for a while. And so Citizen yeah. Kane was on the chopping block. Like he really wanted to colorize Citizen Kane and restore it and put it out in theaters for its 50th anniversary. And the only reason it didn't happen was because Wells, who signed this very famous contract when he came to Hollywood at the age of 24, um, it's a contract that gave him final cut privilege over, over the film, provided he stayed within a certain budget line, um, which no director ever had that codified in a contract before. Um, it gave him the latitude to hire, to, to hire his own cast, hire his own crew. What it also did was it prevented studios from altering the movie in any way, shape, or form after it had been completed. And so nearly 50 years later, Turner lawyers dug out this contract and realized the Wells estate is going to sue us if we do this. I don't want to do that. Yeah. That's the only reason Citizen Kane never got colorized. At the That's last amazing. minute, they realized... I the, the color version of Citizen, <laughs> Citizen oh, Kane. I don't like. I don't think it'll be oh. good, but I would like. Like, it's just going to flatten those images. Oh, completely. Like, and always the skin it, tones are always so weird in those '90s colorized yeah, movies. They're right. this weird kind of like crayon pink color. Well, know? even like you know, like how are you gonna? How are you gonna even shape the blacks? Like in oh yeah, in, in you something can't. like oh my God. that. You, you know? can't. And like you know, even even like if you look at a beautiful three strip Technicolor movie wonderfully restored from the 1930s like all of those colors are really vibrant but those skin tones aren't really great looking either because like wells wells only made a couple of movies in color and he famously said like yeah like i hate shooting in color it just makes faces look like baloney it's gross so if he had, <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine what he will look like in the the last scene of the movie where he's like oh supposed God. to be an old man who's oh. fat and bald and he and like stands so up so much weirdest egg. so much like, and so, so much weird. makeup on his face you know just pounds and yeah. pounds of makeup yeah under these incredibly powerful carbon arc lights perfect perfectly so, smooth round bald head yeah like, it's so they didn't weird. colorize it but they did want to kind of update it for what they thought a modern viewer would want to see. And so the movie comes out in 1991 and people watch it and they're like, I can see faces inside the projection room at the beginning of the movie. 
I'm not supposed to be able to see faces in the projection room at the beginning of the movie. Like, they just brightened the movie way too much. And, like, the whole, oh, point, really? the whole point of the movie is to, like, cast these faces in really heavy shadow. Um, but the, according to the people at Turner, they were like, well, you can't see the faces. You got to see the faces. Mm-hmm. And so they just brightened the whole thing up. How are you supposed to know who's talking? You can't see the faces. It that, doesn't make but, any sense. But that's exactly it. They were thinking like this is film. Av- this is film one hundred and one. Everybody, this is you. You got to see who's talking. Bingo. That's they. They were thinking like an average. Uh, what an average film is supposed to look like, not considering all the weird stuff that the movie's really doing. And so it it, it rolls out, and not that they had a lot of really great material to work with anyway. I mean what people might not know is that we don't have the negative, the original camera negative for Citizen Kane. We've got the camera negative for Casablanca. We got it for Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, all the other kind of like famous classics, but we don't have it for Citizen Kane. And the story always was that it burned up in a warehouse fire, which nobody's going to really question that. It was the silver nitrate era. That stuff happened all the time. A guy named John Falacci who co-created the CBS uh, procedural drama Numbers, worked as an archivist. It's basically as an important contribution to culture as making Citizen Kane. I mean, and it's pretty much They're on the far. same level. He told this story He told this story on Twitter actually just a couple of months ago that he was working in a lab in the late 80s and his lab was contracted to like go through all of the materials for Citizen Kane to decide what they would use to make the restoration print. And there was this one old RKO executive that kept coming in, freaking out, asking what they had found, how what the quality was. And Falachi was like, none of this stuff is very good. You know, it's all kind of scratched. It's a little beat up. It's warped in a couple of places. I'm kind of nervous how we're going to be able to restore this properly. At one point, he just asked, like, can't we just use the original camera negative? And he was like, shushed. And he found out later after the restoration had come out. He asked, like, so what was with the deal with that RKO executive constantly showing up and checking our work? He was like, that guy, he was he was told this. So who knows if it's actually true? But Falachi was told by this associate, like, that RKO executive back in 1941 checked out the negative, not knowing what it was, and sent it to a rendering plant to have the celluloid melt it down so they could extract the silver content from the celluloid. And he realized oh what it, what he had done and had, he was about to be in serious trouble if that story had ever come out. Now, <laughs> is that true? Who's to say? It's what Falachi was told. We don't yeah, know. No, but okay. the point is that like Kane, as visually stunning as it is, even in like the Blu-ray that you may have watched or the streaming version that you can see on HBO Max, it's a beautiful version. It's still a copy of a. Copy. It does look great. I think it looks great. I think it looks great on HBO Max. I think, it's, I I, I think yeah. it looks great. It's the best version you can see on home video, without a doubt. Either HBO Max or or the Blu-ray. But what's interesting about it is that it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Still, can I just say something? This is again like off topic a little bit, but like, just as we kind of you know we're before we get to the end of the show, like. One of the things that stuck out to me on a rewatch again was how much the second hour of the movie is about his relationship with his like second wife. Yeah. I had kind of forgotten, but the movie, the focus of it really like contracts and where it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it becomes a story about the two of them. And of course about, you know, his character is being revealed through his actions with her and his interactions with her. But it was kind of weird watching it again. I was like, why does this movie become this at this point? 
Um, I don't know if you have any insight on that, Evan, or what your thoughts are on that. I, I got a few thoughts. I mean, the first one is, you know, Jorge Luis Borges, the famous Argentinian writer, once said of Citizen Kane that it is a, it's a labyrinth without a center. And what's funny is that that, that was a negative review. Whereas, you know, from my view, oh, yeah, that's, that's actually you know, pretty positive awesome. to me. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is that it's actually not really that. I mean, I think the, the superficial understanding of Kane is that there are all of these conflicting viewpoints that, that butt up against each other or, or, or negate each other. And that's not actually true. I mean, there's actually a really strong biographical spine that kind of runs through everyone's stories, whether it's Thatcher's memoirs or it's Bernstein or if it's Leland or mm-hmm. if it's Susan, it all kind of follows a, a straight line. And, you know, it, it says uh, the uh, same thing about him. Yeah, from from yeah. from all... it's basically if, if there's any differing points of view, it's that when you're younger, your dickishness is forgiven or it's seen as like fun or or edgy or daring. And by the time you're old, you're you're a tyrant, you know. But, but even even those who favor him when he's younger still say things along the lines of um, he was a man who only really believed in himself. Right. You know, even when they talk about him, no one, no one speaks of 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 Charles Foster Kane post death as if he was actually a great man. They speak of him as a selfish man and as yeah. a, of a man who I think Bernstein you know, was kind of full of shit. Bernstein, I think, is the closest version that comes to reverence. And what Bernstein reflects on is them starting the paper, which is that scene right. in the in the editor's office, right. and it's so fun and it's so energetic. Um, but with regard to, uh, so the reason I bring that up is because when Mankiewicz and Wells were writing the script, one of their central points of disagreement was Wells actually really did want it to be a labyrinth without a center. He wanted um, you not to really have a stable understanding of what the truth was, that like Cain would be sh- uh, changing and shape-shifting through whatever lens you were seeing him. And Mankiewicz said, no, 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 we really need to have a strong spine. We really need to have a a central understanding of him and having those differing viewpoints kind of pulling out the versions of him as he goes along in his life. And Wells kind of said, "Okay, let's let's do it that way. The audience will have a better foothold if we do that. I'm willing to accept that. And so with Susan, I think she's just such a massive part of Kane's life in those latter stages. And so Leland... Leland finds Kane's betrayal so poisonous because it's through this individual, through the affair that he's having with Susan. So that's why Susan shows up in Leland's section of the movie so much. And then, of course, Susan shows up so much in her section, too. I mean, Kane's, you know, Wells liked to say that the, the, the greatest sin a man can ever commit is the betrayal of a friend. Um, and I think you can expand that to just the betrayal of anyone that you care about. And I think if there's any, is that if, if Kane's behavior can be understood as destructive on a personal level, it's through Susan, like what he does to Susan is so reprehensible and so painful. And what's so wonderful about the very end of her story is that she's taking control the scene where they, where she's packing up to leave and he says, don't do this to me. And she says, oh, it's you. I'm doing this to you. Well, no, no, that's not what's going down. But can we go back to one thing, like this idea of a labyrinth without a center Mm -hmm. that, that also seems to be a way of describing Cain. 
Sure. Right. Like, sure. It's a way of describing the narrative, like how the narrative of the movie is set up, but Kane himself is, and you could understand why maybe Wells wanted the movie to have less of a spine and to be this sort of shape shifting character. Mm -hmm. But even with finding that spine, the core of the movie is that Kane has no core. He has no belief in anything but himself. He doesn't stand for anything. And I think Leland even says, or one of the characters yeah, says, you know, imagine uh, I, he never, Leland, right? Who says him? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, it, no, no, you know it. <laughs> um, he, he never, he never believed in anything except for Charlie Kane in his life. Right, and it's like there's something along the lines of like imagine dying and not having any convictions. Right. right. He just it's he, like one thing to die. He's he's like he never had a, a. I never knew of him having a conviction. I never knew he had so many opinions without ever actually yes. having a conviction. Yeah. Right. Right, so he's a labyrinth of of of, I think of, that's of very, ideas. That's very of, well put. Theories. Yeah, completely. And, but he has he has no convictions or belief, and he has to die without without them. Yeah, you know? because he um, because he has no idea of how to be uh, uh, to to share of himself with others. He can only take. Then he has yeah. no identity. You know, he's 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 an empty vessel. Which makes sense in terms of like like you said right when you. Uh, quoted that that negative review like it's a yeah. fairly astute point about the movie except that it's a good thing well, and not I don't know, necessarily I, I, a bad I, I, thing. I don't know if you know anything about Borges but he was no idiot <laughs> you know? um, um, la- last but not least um, the mank of it all the mank of it all Boy, oh boy. The make of it all. I've 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 said a lot. I well, I wrote a piece in Decider all about about or certain part about Mank. Um, but um, I mean, now that you have Kane a little bit fresher in your mind, like, what did you guys? How do you guys relate it to Mank now? I mean, it's um, <laughs> it's such I a mean, I, I see having. You know, I watched. Yeah, I mean, it pales in comparison by just a million miles. I mean, unfortunately, Mank pales in comparison to like Gone Girl. It's <laughs> right. just not a very, it's just not a very good movie. Mm. Um, but I will say, rewatching Citizen Kane, it's pretty clear how much he was trying to take from how much he was using Mank to tell this to like retell the story a story of Citizen Kane. Yeah, right. In terms of media, truth, narrative, right. cynicism surrounding how, how how stories are created, and also for Fincher, I think a, a cynical story about Hollywood. Um, yeah, it's just unfortunate that um, Mank seems like a a script that never got figured out. You know, I mean that's the major problem with Mank for me. It's just it's a it's a screenplay that never really hit that last stage of uh of development that it, uh, that it needed it's it's a lot it's crazy to say about david fincher and eric roth it's like, a it's a yeah. it's a uh, it's a labyrinth it's a tootsie pop labyrinth where the it's it's a labyrinth with a soft chewy center it's a complicated thing in that fincher's father wrote this original script and his father died 18 years ago and so this becomes a very personal and has always been a very personal thing for fincher to, to make this project and kind of honor his father but i think the don't care yeah make a good movie <laughs> well sure but the, i mean don't care the 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 real issue is and, and i went back and i because i've been thinking about mank again for some for another thing i'm working on but this real central issue is that i don't think fincher just fundamentally 
even though he says over and over again, like, this isn't a movie about a credit dispute. This is a movie about a man discovering his voice and, fight, and fighting back against the, uh, against the, the, the cynics and, 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 the, and the, the toxicity of the politicians and blah, blah, blah. And like, it's like a redemption story. Um, he just fundamentally misunderstands A, the making of Citizen Kane and B, the culture that 1930s Hollywood and 1930s right-wing politics actually was. And so the points that he ultimately ends up making are really simplistic and saccharine and they're also just based on faulty information. And you're right. I mean, he just doesn't really know how he actually wants to communicate communicate anything of substance. And I think what's so weird about it is that, like, as you said, mentioned with regard to Gone Girl, like, Fincher's movies are very flinty. They're very clear-eyed. Like, you know yes. where they come down on issues. You know, they might want to deal in ambiguity a lot, like case in point Zodiac or something. But there's no, um, you never sense that Fincher doesn't know what he's trying to communicate in any one moment. And in Mank, I don't get that sense that he knows what he wants to do with the movie. Completely agree. It's a muddled movie. It's a totally muddled movie. And it's, and it's frustrating for me that like people are now going to walk away from that movie thinking that Mankiewicz wrote the script himself and Wells stole credit. And I mean, if they make it to the end, if they, well, right. And (laughs) it's an interesting question as to whether people did, because this movie was not successful on Netflix by any measurement. Um, But uh, you know, like, is that true? Was it not, was it not particularly? So so the only public publicly available measure that we have is like the Netflix top 10, which is a problematic Thing, but at least we kind of get a sense of like how to compare Netflix projects to each other. And like Mank on its opening weekend, I think that Saturday hit number 10 and that was it. It hit number 10 on one day. Whereas like every other major Netflix movie, whether it's Five Bloods or Trial of Chicago 7 or Hillbilly Elegy or whatever, they all were number one or number two at some point in their run. Mank came and went and like you kind of understand why because if you don't know anything about classical Hollywood history why would you care about this movie why would it be interesting to you you know and I think like like Fincher's trying to protect himself against that by saying well it's not about Hollywood it's not about a credit dispute it's actually about uh politics and cynicism and you know finding your voice to stand up against the bad guys and like it kind of is that but in the most superficial glossy sentimental way which is again a word that you would just never use with another fincher project it's amazing that we're using it now um also the movie doesn't make doesn't really go out of its way to open the doors for people who are not well affiliated with that era and that yeah world. And, the, and the ways that they do it are just so awkward like that opening scene where um charlie letterer is coming to the paramount lot and he's meeting all the writers and it's just that so that obvious like and this is mr perelman would you like to be called sj or Cy? you know and here is ben hecht mm-hmm. and here is eddie cantor it's like you have to announce who all these like famous people are because otherwise the audience like to think they're extras Famous to who? Well, right. Yeah, sorry. Right. Like, what person who made Hillbilly Elegy number one opening weekend is going, ooh, Ben Hecht. Right. And then like right? And then the people who do know who Ben Hecht are, is, is like, well, why are you announcing it like that? That's not, that's weird. Yes. <laughs> that's such an awkward thing to do. Um, 
Yeah. Like, can I say I saw yeah. I saw um, the Irishman in a theater next to these two guys who were some kind of like mafia groupies. Chris, did you, throughout... did you did you see it in the Broadway theater when it was showing there? No, 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 no. Okay. I don't think so. I did. Was, I did. It was. I, I did as well. Sick. And it's just a, what a, a magical movie going experience Sick. to do. But anyway, you said did they were like complaining about how unrealistic it well, was? No, no, it was the opposite. What I'm saying is, like, there's a way to do these kinds of things that it works for the f two people that give a shit about this thing. Absolutely. There was just enough in The Irishman that they kept going, like, oh, that's uh, Joey Smiles a lot. Oh, and that's, like, uh, Frankie Toenails, you know, and they were, but they were just doing it the entire film, and it was not at all apparent to me, and I didn't give a shit, but they but were they loving it. They were loving it. And that's, know? and that's the thing of, like, you know, because the thing that Manx Defenders will fall back on is, like, every story takes dramatic license with historical facts. You can't hem a movie into like having all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. It's got to serve the story. It's got to be dramatic. And I'm like, you can have a dramatic, compelling story without just flat out cheating in such a blatant way. And I think the other part that has always kind of pissed me off about Mank is that Fincher makes a lot of hay about the fact that he wanted to get all of the facts correct. And that he wanted to do all the research and get all the research right. And it shows up in these weird, weird ways. Like um, uh, uh, at the end of the movie when Wells and Mank are having that fight. And one, at one point, uh, 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 Mank just says, uh, ah, Nelson Algren, please copy. Like he's trying to say that Wells was saying something like Nelson Algren. Nelson Algren was an unknown in 1940. Nobody knew who Nelson Algren was. Like it's so it's like it's like these it's 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 the easy L's like you didn't have to write that, you know, like it's not doing anything for anybody to add that. And it's wrong. So, like, why the fuck is it there? Right. But all that kind of like all that kind of like, oh, we're sticking to historical facts and my dad wrote it and it's personal for me. Like, I hate to be too cynical, no, but yeah. that's all what the movie is about, which is right. telling stories to sell something. Yeah. And Fincher is always been fantastic at that that's what his most of his movies are about that's selling right. a narrative and so therefore like when he's selling a, the easiest way to sell a movie these days is to be like it was uh it was personal for me it's sure. a, this is like a yeah like a, it's a rhetorical I, you know, like move. A, a, i'm i'm also on um i'm also 40 years old and married to this same woman that's in the movie it's well, very it, like, personal to me and these are my daughters in the movie too right. it short circuits any criticism of it that's because it. it's like yes you know well this means a lot to me uh yeah. so obviously you'd be a huge dick if you pointed out all the ways that it obviously sucks yeah and, so, and also and also I'm, like, also I'm also a stand-up comedian and um my girlfriend was also I walked in on my girlfriend cheating on me or something right. bullshit. And like, it like doesn't that, it wouldn't you know? it, and you know people I'm also from Staten Island. I'm only doing Judd Apatow. <laughs> I too. I, I don't know. You know, my dad also died. I mean, actually, it was in 9/11. It was a little different. I too am a king of Richmond. At County. least, at least, at least, Seth Rogen. I, I don't know. I'm really just taking this tangent Whatever. very far here. But at least Seth Rogen left the Judd Apatow milieu and made like his own comedies that are not just like superficially personal yeah. Yeah. right like you yeah, could say yeah, yeah. this is the, this is the end he kind of destroyed that right. and like took that whole idea and 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 blew it up and since then he makes 
completely different kinds of things where Judd Apatow keeps finding a new comedian and being kind of like, how did you get into comedy? And they're like, oh, I was depressed once. And they're like, oh, okay, let's make a movie about it. Two and a half hour movie. Yeah, no. It's like, I would much rather watch Pineapple Express than Knocked Up like any day of the fucking week. Oh, easily. Yeah, I'd much rather yeah. watch This Is The End than This Is 40 yeah. any day of without, the week. Without a doubt. But, um, you know, people are surprised when I say this, but it is true that like, that a line like that Nelson Algren line or saying that like Universal Pictures makes monster movies in 1930 when they didn't start making them until 1931. I wouldn't care about any of those little slip ups. Those wouldn't matter to me if you got the big stuff right. And the big stuff is making a movie about a guy finding his voice and t and sticking it to the man. But the problem is. Citizen Kane didn't stick it to the man. It's a very politically angry movie, and it's a very radical movie in a lot of ways, but like it didn't ruin William Randolph Hearst. You know, if anything, William Randolph Hearst became even more powerful after the movie came out. It didn't stop right wing politics infecting Hollywood. Need I remind anyone that six years after Citizen Kane's premiere, the blacklist happened. Fincher's big ideas that he wants to get across in Mank are like, um, if you gotta, you you can you can find your voice and 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 be a, be a voice for political change. Um, Hollywood uh, screws over the people that it purports to take care of and sells you a bunch of lies about reality. None, and also Herman Mankiewicz solely wrote Citizen Kane. Like none, either those things are just untrue or they're very like pat and simple. And, like, if you've seen Barton Fink, you know that, like, Hollywood screws over writers and dabbles in fascism. Like, there's nothing particularly, like, exciting or radical about those ideas. And so you got to have right. something else. you got to have something. In like, 2020, yeah, 2021, you're like, Hollywood's not the best place to be an idealistic writer. Yeah, like, and, like, there's so Okay, there was, I mean. There were so many reviews trying to, like, give it props for, like, telling us that like the golden age of Hollywood was dangerous and it was mean and it was, and it was, and it was duplicitous. Like, yeah, no shit, dude. Of course it was. I've known that since I was yeah, a teenager. Right. I mean, and, and again, I mean, like, did you see Mullen Falls? Like, well, right. And that, know, and, like, and it gets yeah, back to that central place. point. Like, who is this movie for? Like, yeah. I already know the things that you're trying to tell me are profound. So it's not for me. And the people who don't know about those ideas aren't watching it. So who is it for? Right, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to sex it up or put some hillbillies in it for them to. Yeah, watch. and also the other God, funny I... thing is it doesn't seem to be for Academy voters either because Nomadland is probably gonna run the table in the major categories. The script didn't even get nominated. You know, it's a toss up as to whether or not the cinematographer is gonna win the Oscar. Nomadland might get that one. So like, oh, no, I feel like Nomadland's gonna win. Yeah. So like, if you come home empty-handed at the Oscars, then I know I hated that fucking movie. Yeah, I honestly I hated did too. hate Nomadland. Uh, but before we wrap it up, uh, we asked three questions at the end of the podcast. Mm -hmm. We can really only ask one of them in this session because we're talking about a movie from 1941 rather than a movie from the 90s or from 30 years later. So there's only one question, and it is, what is your favorite part of the movie? And that means, what is your favorite part of Citizen Kane? <laughs> the best movie of all time. Yeah, right. Chris, you want to what, a shot in your opinion, that? is the greatest scene from the greatest movie of all time? Oh my god! Um, 
Yeah, you know, I I like the whole section, the whole section at the beginning where he's launching the newspaper and he's building the uh, his media empire and he's being like a young quippy media guy, like yeah. that that how whole you, thing. How you see yourself? Oh, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's exactly like how I am. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, every room he goes in, everybody loves him. He's very funny, you know, very attractive and charming, like just like me. I really identify. Yep. It's just good. To, I like representation matters. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. I, it felt really good to see myself up there. More hot, charismatic, cishet white men in media, please. Yes. Also, never enough. Also, how uh, also how Steven Seagal sees himself too. Right. Every time he goes <laughs> in a room, everybody loves him. And I'll everybody say, like, like, him, like, yeah. like, like Wells legitimately is really hot in those scenes. Like he is, oh, he yeah. is a snack 100%. because Wells. I mean, even before he got fat, like Wells was a big guy. He was over well over six. Well, not well over, but like a little bit over six feet tall. Very strongly built like he and that hair and the oh, the cheekbones and that voice that voice is so erotic you know so good it's yes and i will i one other thing i'll say is i just i've talked about how much it, it is of like the current media industry mm. but i i you know the the frame story is they're like reporting the obituary newsreel, yeah. like, which is kind of funny. Yeah. But like the process of reporting, I think is actually some, there's some little details in it that I thought were really good about reporting that were interesting and fun to see. Like when he's interviewing somebody and they're saying to him, uh, well, who else are you talking to? Yep. And they're like, well, I'll tell you who you ought to talk to yep. is this person. Like that is a real thing that happens in reporting. And it's great when that happens because you're, you're getting more information, you're getting good leads. And it was just fun and cool to see in a movie like this where, and I, I don't think I've watched it in a while. And so now that I've done a lot of reporting in my life, I was like, oh, this is actually like a pretty good movie about being a journalist. Like, it was really interesting. That, that, that character Thompson, the journalist who's going around to everybody, I could not agree with you more, Chris. Like I've always loved that character and I always thought he was a very interesting device, but until I actually started doing my own reporting and like chasing down leads and talking to sources, I have a totally new appreciation for what that guy yeah. is actually. Doing. And even the scene, the way they structure the scene where he goes into the archive and reads, yeah. the, has to, and it's like, that's, that is what it's like to go to one of those fucking weird archives. Yep. Like they're so crazy about it. Nuts. They don't want to let you see anything, but you're like, well, what place fucking exist then? Like, what are you doing here? You are to you know? wear these particular white gloves and you will only read oh, these sorry. eight pages and you have a 90 minute window to do so. And then we shut the entire building down. <laughs> Yeah, and then crazy. yeah and it's like 3 p.m and yeah. we all are gonna go home like yeah. this is the end of our work day yeah. thanks for the use of the hall folks yeah it's fucking ridiculous ricky what's your favorite uh, part oh i'm very simple i just like the scene where he trashes the the room oh yeah it's one oh, shot so and he just he trashes so the bedroom it's so cathartic and beautiful and it's also great because he's costumed up and like yeah. The fat suit and like the you know, which is just a pillow on his chest and and the makeup, so he can kind of barely get around. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, how an old uh, his like arms old man like don't lift. Yeah, and uh, supposedly yeah, he really hurt himself that in scene. that scene. Yeah, he, is this he, true, he, Evan? He cut his hands up because he was actually smashing real glass, so he sliced his hands up when he was doing that. Yeah. Oh wow! And he also, yeah, um, I love that the scene. scene where he's and this actually is a segue to my favorite moment. The scene where he's um, yelling at Jim Gettys uh, as Jim Gettys is walking mm -hmm. down the apart the stairs of Susan's apartment. He's like, "I'm going to send you to Sing Sing Gettys. You're a cheap, crooked politician." He um, he fell down the stairs and busted his ankle, and so he they had to completely reorganize the uh, shooting schedule so they could just shoot stuff that he wasn't in, and he was just directing from a wheelchair for like two months. 
Um, but my favorite scene, What's is, my favorite scene is actually, I think, a, a bit of an idiosyncratic pick. But it's the scene where Gettys confronts Kane and Kane's wife Emily and Susan in Susan's apartment. Um, mm-hmm. This movie is remembered for the rapid fire dialogue and the really bold, deep focus comp- compositions and just the rat-a-tat speed of it and the energy of it. But that scene, and Wells in general throughout his career. One of the things that I think he was always really b- brilliant at is nursing emotions out of silence. And that whole scene is built around these unbelievable silences between the truth finally coming out uh, about who Susan is, the fact that Emily now knows who Susan is, that Gettys now is exerting power over Kane, which he despises. And you can watch this phase of Kane's life completely disappear in front of his eyes. And he doesn't like that because this is a man who likes to be able to hold control over everything. And you just feel all the hurt and all the pain um, in Emily and also all the determination that um, also, that emerges once the scene is over. When she finally says, you decided what you were going to do, Charles, some time ago. And she just leaves, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I also love that scene because of the it's the truth about the political machinations Absolutely. as well between betw- between them and how full of shit um, Kane, is. Uh, Kane has been right. up until that time right. about his like the meaning of his politics that it's all personal and that it's all just a pow- an attack for power right and and it doesn't matter who he hurts along the way whether it's his wife or his mistress I mean Dorothy Comingor is a performance that doesn't often get talked about in this movie. And as Susan Alexander, I think she delivers such a beautifully empathetic and warm performance from beginning to end. You know, the character is considered to be based on Marion Davies, who is William Randolph Hearst's mistress, who's played by Amanda Seyfried in Mank. Um, and, Mank. And, and, Mank. And, and, and the knock, Meg. the knock always is that like Susan Alexander is this dumb blonde. She's ditzy. She doesn't have a whole lot going for her. And that's not who Marion Davies actually was. But I don't agree with that reading of Susan. I think Susan is maybe a little naive, but she's also really romantic. She wants love. She wants to be cared for. She, and she's also unbelievably defiant at the end of the movie. Um, and she's right. Everything she says I, to him is right. You know, and even, like it, it, and even in the even in the bar scenes with the nightclub scenes with Thompson, where she's drunk or she's hungover, and it's very clear that she's an alcoholic and she's down on her luck. There's still such a steeliness to her. I mean, like at one point, um, she's uh, Thompson says, uh, uh, a, 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 a lot of people loved him once and she just kind of looks up very softly. She, she says, don't you think I still do something like that? And it's so delicate and it's so simple and it's so quiet. And like, and again, in the in the scene where Gettys is confronting them and she's just saying, think of your son, Charlie, you don't have to do all of this for me. You can see that even though his decisions are ultimately going to lead to them getting married, she doesn't necessarily want it this way that, He's hurting his wife, but she's he's also hurting Susan too, and it's again just all of these silences that Wells leaves in between all of the dialogue is just unbelievable. And Herman Bernard Herman's score is an all time great score. 
but there's no score in that scene. It's just the silence. And then, this is also amazing. I mean, Wells very famously said that um, when he showed up on set, like, he was a magpie. He watched Stagecoach 40 times, the John Ford movie, to learn how Stagecoach was constructed. He um, hired Greg Toland as his cinematographer because Toland was like, I don't, I want to work with somebody who is a complete naif, who doesn't know what he's doing because I think we can do create something totally original that's not based on bad habits. And he hired all of these young, this really young production designer named Perry Ferguson and and um, the visual effects team of Vernon Walker, just all he wanted to, and Robert Wise, Robert Wise, who directed West Side Story and The Sound of Music later in his career. He was a 25 year old editor at RKO working on B movies when Wells was like, You're young, you're hip, you're with it, you're editing my movie. Now, Wise would betray him a year later when Wise recut Magnificent Ambersons, but that's another story. The point is, Wells was, despite his reputation of being an egomaniac, was actually quite humble in bringing on technicians who knew more about the medium than he did um the one difference is interview you hear interviews with the sound designer the sound recordist a guy named james g stewart and because wells worked in radio wells had all of this knowledge and this sophisticated approach to sound and stewart said like he was showing me things on how to mix sound that i never would have come up with on my own and one of my favorite pieces of sound design is the end of that scene, Gettys is going down the stairs and Kane is screaming after him, Gettys! And then Gettys steps out of the apartment and the scream is still happening and then the door closes and the sound cuts out. And you get this amazingly abrupt point of emphasis to show that like Kane's on his own now. He's left his old life behind. And it's all done through that sound edit. It's brilliant. And there are so many other moments like that throughout the movie. I mean, this movie, again, multiple books have been written about this movie and this movie alone that it's an, it's just an endless uh it's an endless font we could go on for days but um i really love that scene <laughs> well <laughs> we did it kids can you believe well, it <laughs> guys it's been 30 years since this movie came out 50 years ago um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's also this uh, is, no it, it, it we're this is coming this episode will be coming out for the 80th anniversary of citizen kane Right, oh, that it's is 80 true. years that later. Is true. You know? it's, it's 80 years later with this one. Special yeah. episode. And it was re-released 30 years ago, so I think we're yeah. in the clear. And, and there's, multiple multiple in the clear. There's, a, there's a wonderful Blu-ray that people can buy of it, and you can also stream it on HBO Max. And uh, this, I guess this will be coming out right after the Oscars, so people will know if Mank actually won anything, so no, Kane Lord. can be in the news again. And to your point, you say that we can't relate this movie to the 90s at all. I mean... I think this movie has a lot of really like timeless themes that we've like touched on a little bit that can be applied. Oh, I agree. Era. I com- I completely agree. Um, Evan, uh, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find on Twitter at Evan Davis Sports. You can find me there. Um, hopefully, going to be publishing something about Manx aspect ratio fairly soon, um, which unfortunately also involves the Snyder cut. Just bear with it. I think I have interesting mm-hmm. things to say. Uh, about a very uninteresting movie. Chris loved the Snyder. Oh, you do. Don't respond to this and don't don't. This is not an invitation. This is not an invitation. We're wrapping it up. 
Everybody shut the fuck up. We're so close to landing. Chris, this Chris thing. we'll take it off mic. Um, guys, thank you so much. Uh, Citizen Kane is, uh, like uh, Evan said, it's on HBO Max, or so there's a Blu-ray. And if you've never seen it, it's fucking Citizen Kane. It's, 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 what the fuck are it's, you fucking doing? Yeah. Like, it's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's fun to watch. It's, it's fun to and watch. And it's not like reading a classic book. It takes an hour and 45 minutes versus, you know, a few days or a week or however long you it takes. You spend more time binging novel. old episodes of Love It or List It. Just suck it up and sit for Citizen Kane for two hours. Turn the lights out and watch Citizen Kane. <laughs> We'll be